0: Coming up on Golf Today, UCLA's own Patrick Cantlay doubles up at the BMW, becoming the first player ever to defend his title in the FedEx Cup playoffs. Is he the game's most underrated player? And Gig'Em, Sam Bennett of Texas A&M, makes it through the gauntlet that is the US amateur with a big time game and a message from his late father tattooed on his arm. And the golf world pays tribute to one of its own as Tom Weisskopf passed away over the weekend We remember the man and his talent as a player and architect, coming up on Golf Today. Golf Today, brought to you by PointsBet. Golf Today on a Monday, Damon Hack alongside the great Jaime Diaz, a couple of California kids talking about the great game that we love. And speaking of California kids, Patrick Cantley getting it done. I don't get to break this head cover out very often, but, you know, Pat cantley they call him Patty Ice, as you know. Uh, When the getting is good, I bring out the old head cover, and we get to hear a little UCLA Bruin fight song on a Monday.
1: You're my favorite favorite Bruin. I am? Yes, after Kareem.
0: After Kareem, okay. Arthur Ashe. Pretty good Bruin. Also. And how oh. about Patrick Kentley? So many pretty good Bruin. That guy's rising up, isn't he? Yeah, He loves the playoffs. How yeah. about it? Yeah. He does, huh? The winner, Patrick Cantlay. You see the score. Final round, 69, 14 under for that one-shot victory over Scott Stallings. Look at Adam Scott. Gets inside the bubble. Able to get it done and make his way to the tour championship John Rom playing well as well final round of 67 for the man known as Big Spain and after his win Patrick Cantlay spoke with our Kira K Dixon
2: Well Patrick Cantlay becomes the first player to successfully defend a title at a FedEx Cup event no dramatic playoff this year but what does it mean to you to walk away with this win
3: It means a lot. Um, You know, today was a grind out there. The golf course was playing tough. It firmed up, and I had a lot of those mid-range putts uh, and was able to convert pretty much all of them. Um, And, yeah, after this year and the playoffs I've had, I'm glad to avoid a playoff today.
2: Take us through what the energy was like out there today. How much were you aware of where you stood on the leaderboard and the emotions?
3: Yeah, I definitely watched the leaderboard, um, and I saw that, for the most part, guys weren't scoring too well. Uh, It was going to be you know a lot of pars and a lot of grinding it out So I kind of adjusted my mindset you know in the first few holes Mm -hmm. uh, Because the golf course was playing a lot more difficult and uh, I hit a lot of solid shots and to play You know the last five or six holes a couple under I thought was was really great
2: Well, you have a chance next week to do something again that no one's ever done on the PGA Tour Which is win back-to-back FedEx Cup FedEx Cups Uh, How are you thinking about your game and keeping yourself ready and excited heading into that final week?
3: Yeah, I'm sure I'll draw on a lot of experiences from last year and just try and press the replay button. Although this year I'll be a couple behind Scotty, so it'll be a little different kind of a challenge. But East Lake's a golf course I really like, and uh, I'm in great position, so I'm looking forward to the challenge.
2: Will you give yourself a chance to celebrate?
3: <laughs> maybe after, maybe after
0: next week.
2: All right, congratulations.
0: Thanks, Karen. Thirty players with a ticket to ride. Tour Championship, Atlanta, Georgia, all begins. On Thursday. You can watch it here on Golf Channel. Remember, the tour finale will begin under that scattered scoring system. So, Scotty Shuffle, the world number one, and the FedEx Cup now number one as well, Have a, has a two shot lead over Patrick Cantlay starting on Thursday. So, so, where do you see this player with eight wins on his PJ Tour resume now? Some big time wins, three in the playoffs and two mm. memorial tournaments besides.
1: You know, he's got a great resume. Underrated, maybe.
0: Perhaps. Uh, I I think he gets credit
1: for what he's done. Okay. uh, Because he has got some great wins, but he has not correspondingly, you know, sort of uh, assisted his record with majors. Okay. Or playing even that well in majors. For whatever reason, it's kind of a mystery. He's only got three top tens and 23 major appearances. For his his abilities and what he's got done otherwise in winning on regular events, it just seems like a low ratio. Mm. So who knows if that's something that he is... Got a mental issue about you know Mm. right now that he's working out i I don't think so he just seems so cool but probably pressing a little in majors but beyond that he's just so solid uh throughout the game we say this about a lot of players that are well-rounded nobody may be as well-rounded as as patrick cantley he plays with finesse he's got wonderful foundation his teacher jamie mulligan talked about building a pyramid where the lower blocks are the most solid and that's really what he's done because there's very little extraneous movement in his golf swing You know, he plays with great rhythm.
0: Efficient. is he the most efficient player in the game. I mean, you know, he's not, nothing's really flashy. 12th in strokes game putting, 8th in strokes game total. It just seems like he's an efficient golfer.
1: You watch the swing and it just doesn't have a lot of movement. It just looks like it repeats so easily. Uh, And the misses aren't that bad usually. Now, occasionally we'll miss a fairway. Maybe that's what's caught him in some majors. I don't know. Uh, But he still has the abilities to make shots from... Mm. difficult places and, 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 and make up for his mistakes. So, And the putting stroke looks like he's going through that seasonal surge right now. It's yeah. getting hot. And when he gets hot with a putter, he can beat anybody anytime. Mm. Uh, he's always going to be consistent. The wins aren't going to come probably as prolifically as somebody with a superpower. Yeah. But at the same time, he's very opportunistic, it appears. When he gets there, he usually puts his best foot forward.
0: He's also shown a great affinity, as you mentioned, for this time of year. He said one of the best shots he hit on Sunday mm-hmm. was the fairway bunker shot on the 18th hole, 160 yards, ball above his feet, eight iron. Jaime, mean, he said he tried to hit a slice and swung as hard as he
1: could. That was a low margin for error shot, but when you're, you know, when you're in control of yourself and you have great fundamentals, you can do that kind of thing. Yeah. And he he definitely, you know, rose to the occasion there. That's something that, you know, you dig in your memory bank for those when you're under pressure. And now mm. he's got a lot of
0: them now. Speaking of memory banks, we thought it'd be cool to kind of show some of the great fairway bunker shots throughout time. Let's flash back all the way back to the year 2000. Canadian Open, six iron, Tiger Woods, 72nd hole, 218 yards, all carry.
1: This is a little classic. He did push it a bit. He did confess later. (laughs) He missed the green. (laughs) But it made it look even better. It looked like he was just flag hunting. So, you know, Tiger's one of the greatest fairway fairway bunker players of all time. How about this? this? Probably his greatest
0: shot ever. Damon, take it away. I mean, four iron. Yeah, I think it was a three iron, maybe. Oh, even. Two I two back, think it was a yeah. three iron. Mm-hmm. This was the, the 18th hole. This is the 2002 PGA Championship. Ball below his feet. It's cold, into the wind. That ball landed like a butterfly with sore feet, and he made the putt. Then, of course, earlier this summer, Matthew Fitzpatrick said he'd been struggling with his fairway bunker play. Did not look like it here. That was a little bit of a mini version of Tiger's,
1: because he had to, you know, cut it also uh, from a kind of a sidehill lie, but it came at the best time yeah.
0: possible. And you remember some others throughout oh, sure. history as well.
1: Well, you know, Sandy Lyle, of course, at 18 at, at the Masters in 88. Yeah. And, of course, Seve at the 90, 1983 Ryder Cup with a three-wood from mm. an uphill lie to a green 240 yards away. A lot of guys who saw that it's the greatest shot they ever saw. Yeah. Jack and Tiger were, you know, not accidentally the greatest fairway bunker players because Jack especially took so little sand. He just picked the ball perfectly yeah. with power, and he could hit it high with a long iron. He could take a two or three iron out of a bunker and still clear the lip it was a great yeah. weapon, especially on par fives. So Jack, you know that was a kind of a, an unsung dimension of his when he really had to turn it on and yeah. show that he had something others don't. And actually, as as a group, pl- uh, I think tour players that's their biggest divide between the average player is fairway really? bunkers because there's okay. less margin for error. Yeah, you know, imperfect contact. Hurts you more in the bunker than anywhere else. And those guys just habitually make great contact. And when they do miss, it's usually thin. Yeah. Thin to win. They don't miss fat very often. We Mm. saw Scotty
0: Sheffler do that a couple of times
1: and it hurt him. But usually, we saw
0: Jordan Spies tied for the lead. Mm -hmm. You know, Michael Grella tried to talk him out of it. By the way, I put a little more weight on my left side just, you know, for those that are at home (laughs) keeping score. You know, a little weight on the left side. Charlie Reimer taught me that years ago. Ball first. Ball first contact. I mean, you know, I'm not a great. We well, hit the player, baby cut, up that's a good swing for yeah, the yeah, Bunker. it is. Here. Thank you. Thank you very You're much. Welcome, for more on this Monday, let's <laughs> turn to Paige McKenzie. Paige, always great to see you. You watched Patrick Kelly grind it out for that eighth win on the PGA Tour. What were your main takeaways from the final round?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I like that you pointed out the 18th hole. You, you mentioned it. That Bunker shot was really impressive. But I actually think what happened on 17 was maybe more significant. Uh, when Patrick Cantley stood on that tee, he had just come off a missed fairway on 16, he'd come off a miss fairway on the 12th, and he'd missed it kind of wide right. So when this ball started tracking to the right, you're thinking, man, this is going to be difficult for a player to try to get a birdie. But what a lucky break, and he acknowledged it after the round, how important that was. To not be in the rough, not be in the bunker, to give himself a good lie. Because what he had left, what he had remaining, was only 65 yards on this 17th hole. And it gave him this opportunity to make the birdie that he needed to ultimately go ahead. And when I think about it, he was not strong with his wedges on that Sunday. He had eight shots inside 125 yards. And starting at the very first hole, only 68 yards and ends up missing the green and so I'm thinking for a player that throughout the day did not convert from short distance to do what he did on 17 was even more impressive. You go to the sixth there the tenth hole excuse me 120 yards again doesn't even hit the fairway from the middle of the green and there were a couple other wedges that he had throughout the day that it wasn't is ideal of conditions because he had missed the fairway he put himself in more difficult positions so it was impossible to take advantage of the short distance this from only 112 yards you're expecting to stick it close but that was actually a pretty decent shot considering he was coming out of the rough and then on the 16th hole I mentioned he had missed this fairway as well he only had 111 yards on the 16th But again, with out of position, so not able to take advantage of the short distance. So when I think about how important the 17th hole, it was important because he put himself in position because again, out of position, that was not a bad shot over the ridge to get to the top tier like that was about as good as he was going to do from 111 yards. But when he was in the fairway, he was up to his season average, which is not one of the best on the PGA Tour and then out of the rough, still 25 feet. So another seven feet on average for the week, that's not Sunday, but for the week, he would be further from the hole. So imagine that 17th hole, if he was out of the rough, out of the fairway bunker, not able to get that kick forward to get to 65 yards, what would have been different? So I'm gonna give credit to the good bounce, but I'm also gonna give it credit to the fact that situationally when he had the most pressure he delivered the best wedge shot of the day the closest to the hole of the day on that 17th hole when he needed it most
0: great stuff from page mckenzie and a reminder that even the winners on the pj tour don't hit perfect shots all the way uh, on the way to hosting that trophy (laughs) all right folks the golf world said goodbye to a legend in the game last week tom weisskopf passed away at the age of 79 we remember Tom's impact on and off the golf course. And we say hello to his good friend Judy Rankin right after the break. Welcome back to golf today. 1973 open champ. Tom Weisskopf passed away Saturday evening after a long battle with pancreatic cancer. In addition to his victory at Troon, Weisskopf finished runner up at the Masters four times in a span of seven years illustrious career for Copple as a player and a golf course architect. A list of some of his notable achievements. The 16 PGA Tour wins, including that 1973 Open. Four-time winner on PGA Tour champions, including the 1995 U.S. Senior Open at Congressional. 1963 Western Amateur Champion. Two-time U.S. Ryder Cup team member. Notable course designs include T.P. See Scottsdale, True North, and Loch Lomond over in Scotland and work as a golf analyst for CBS Sports, ABC, and ESPN. As you can imagine, the golf world sharing their love for Tom Weiskopf on social media yesterday. This from Tom Watson. A lot of us found out that Tom Weiskopf had passed away from this tweet. I send my deepest sympathies to the family of Tom Weiskopf. We'll miss you and your stories. Rest in peace, my friend. Pancreatic cancer has struck again. World Golf Hall of Fame member, Annika Sorenstam. so sorry to hear the passing of Tom Weisskopf, thoughts and prayers to his family. Great talent on the course and second career in golf course architecture. Rest in peace. And the Scotsman, Robert McIntyre, I'll always be grateful for what Tom Weisskopf has done in golf, created the most spectacular golf course, Loch Lomond, and possibly my all-time favorite. And Gary Player, World Golf Hall of Fame member, sending my deepest condolences to Tom Weisskopf's family. Another great life gone too soon due to pancreatic cancer. Rest in peace, Tom. And Judy Rankin, so sad for the battle Tom Weisskopf went through. He was blessed to have Lori by his side. Working with him not so many years ago was such fun. Very talented player and architect. And the Hall of Famer Judy Rankin joins us on this very difficult Monday in the game. We appreciate your time. Judy, we knew Tom as the golfer, but you knew him as the person. What did you enjoy most about your friendship with Tom Weisskopf?
7: Well, I, I first met him when I was still a teenager playing the tour. And uh, I didn't know him very well, but I first met him. Uh, kind of fascinated by Tom Weisskopf. He was quite the figure uh, when you were 19 years old and you saw Tom Weisskopf. Uh, I remember some of the stories about his antics on the golf course, his uh, terrible temper, and so on and so forth. But um, beyond that, and beyond seeing him and knowing him a little bit through the years, uh, when he came to work for ESPN, uh, all the last years that we were doing the Open Championship, we had a great time. He was great company. Uh, we all made friends with his wife, Lori. And as uh, to my recollection, his partner, in crime on the air was Trey Wingo, and the two of them were um, amazingly funny and could really play off of each other. So we had an awful good time, and it was a group that included Tariko and Andy North and Scott Van Pelt and Curtis Strange and uh, uh, Days That You Can't Get Back Again.
1: Judy, Tom was extremely, I thought, introspective about his career in conversation. He, he relived his career for you, you know, and there was some guilt, he said, at not fulfilling his potential or even remorse. I just wonder, do you feel like the players that are slightly or maybe a lot unfulfilled tend to make more insightful broadcasters?
7: I think you have to have been punished a little bit by the game to know yeah. the, 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 the real um, core of what is playing competitive professional golf um year round and year after year. Uh, I don't I think if you I don't think you can be exactly as honest as you should be um, if you haven't had some hard times in the game. And if you don't have some regrets, I'm always amazed at all the people who say they have no regrets. Um, you know, oh, what a great thing. And I, I I'm not one of those people.
0: He was honest about those regrets and, and the expectations and the comparisons to Jack Nicklaus, for example, following him to Ohio State. Did you ever see any of that weigh on him outwardly or with your time with him?
7: Not as he was older. No, he he had, he had gotten over all that. He had great appreciation for all the things that were right and good about him and golf. Um, and he totally, you know... Um, He he was he was very um, forthcoming about the things that he didn't do well in life, um, but he couldn't go back. And he was uh, I think he was he was being the best guy he could be all the last years of his life. And I don't mean the last couple of years. I mean, all the last years of his life. And, um, you know, the big mark that he's left for us is all these golf courses.
1: Yeah, you talk about those golf courses, Judy. And, you know, he was such a artistic guy and had a great appreciation for aesthetics. Obviously his golf courses, the way he dressed. I just wonder what conversations were like with him at dinner, were they wide ranging? Was he like an eclectic person uh, beyond golf?
7: I think he was a very, very intelligent guy. And, um, you know, it's probably, and let me see if I can say this properly. It's probably that kind of intelligence that makes you know how good somebody like Jack Nicholas was. That he that that he knew in the back of his mind at all times that Jack Nicholas was a, a greater talent than he was. Um, and and I and we all know that Tom Wisecoff did not live up to his potential. He knew that, but he had learned to live with it. Uh, and um, and he loved the game in a, in a wonderful way. At the end, uh, Tom, I, I I never saw in the last years that I spent a fair amount of time with him, I never saw anything that would even resemble temper, Uh, nothing like it. Uh, but as I, as I looked at all the golf courses today, I was amazed how many there were. And there is a a word, uh, that came up and he said, I don't want to make a golf hole intimidating. And so I love that about an architect, maybe challenging, but not intimidating. And, uh, that's the kind of architect it seems like he was. And so we all appreciate that.
0: Well, Judy, when you consider his playing record, the major championship, the 16 PGA Tour wins, and couple that with his prolific resume as a golf court architect, can you make a case that Tom Weisskopf belongs with you in the World Golf Hall of Fame?
7: I'm going to tell you quite honestly, I made that case. I really tried to make that case, and I tried to make that case um, shortly after I knew Tom was sick. And um, I, there, there just wasn't enough support um, to make that happen. I, I'm not so sure. You know, I, I really, I'm sorry that it takes the passing of someone for people to celebrate what all they did that seems to matter to each and every one of us. Um, and so he did, he did a lot of things that are matter to all of us in golf. So uh, it's a shame that that's celebrated after he's gone.
0: I have to agree with you wholeheartedly. Judy, thank you so much for your time. It was a very sad Monday in the game. We hope to speak to you soon.
7: Thank you, guys. Have a good day.
0: And this statement from the commissioner of the PGA Tour, Jay Monahan: The PGA Tour saddened at the passing of Tom Weisskopf, a towering figure in the game of golf, Not only during his playing career, but through his accomplished work in the broadcast booth and golf course design business, Tom is leaving behind a lasting legacy in golf. The beautiful swing he showcased during his 16 career PGA Tour victories is still being emulated today, while his golf courses remain as testaments to his love for the game. Our hearts and deepest sympathies are with the entire Weiskopf family during this time. Jaime, how about the words of Judy Rankin that she campaigned and pushed for time wascoff to be a member of the world golf hall of fame
1: i unfortunately you know with death often comes more appreciation which is sad because tom would have loved to have been alive when he goes into the hall he will go into the hall of fame yeah i don't know if it'll be the next time it'll be soon and it's well deserved you know 16 victories one major 28 victories worldwide a true figure in the game statuesque Mm you know, put his hands on the club and stood over the ball like no one else, Mm -hmm. almost. It was just beautiful to watch. He had a real persona in the game, and he should be in the hall.
0: And seemed to have found peace later in his life. In some ways, was he the most complicated star in this (laughs) firmament of of golf course, or golf stars, I should say, in the 1970s, you know, with Miller and Watson and Nichols? Was he the most complicated?
1: I think everybody who plays at the highest level is pretty complicated, but Mm -hmm. he might have been the most candid and the most introspective, and... In some ways, the most haunted, but in this almost endearing way, that he in, admitted his flaws mm. and studied them and regretted some of them, but also, as Judy said, came to peace with them. You know, he had a wonderful last hurrah at the 1995 senior open at Congressional. He played mm. beautifully. Jack was in the field playing well. Tom beat him by four. He, we said, he was so at peace at that moment. He had mm. left some of the demons from behind. behind. He used to feel like He was such a perfectionist, if he hit a bad shot, he wanted to start all over, tear the cart up like an artist tearing up Mm -hmm. the canvas and putting up a new... You can't do that in golf. you got to keep going. And he just kept going beautifully at congressional you know he was 53 years old but you were there for that
0: i was there what did you what do you remember about his game at that time well
1: it was a big game he hadn't lost very much at all and he yeah. said himself that's the best i've ever played and that included trune in seven in 73 which really is amazing but yeah. he was that kind of athlete he endured beautifully physically mm. and he just had that classic swing that lasted and he was a big guy 6'3, yeah. 200 pounds just classic and he just did so many good things you know and he that introspection was beautiful because He had a great appreciation for the guys he played against. Nicholas, Floyd, Trevino, Mm. Miller, Watson, all those guys. He said, those guys were really tough guys to beat, and they were tough people, but they were really intelligent about winning. He goes, I lacked that. Mm. That's what I lacked. I learned it later. So I just felt like he was a student of the game in a way that gave you more than somebody who maybe was a little bit more fulfilled.
0: You love talking. To, I, I, I loved talking to him. I know you played golf with him at Lock, one time. Lock Lundman, nine,
1: right? nine holes at Lock Lomond is beautiful. The years just fell by it was like 2010. Amazing. But I did love talking to him just very quickly. Golf Digest did long interviews and they started in 1990 and it was the best thing in the magazine for a long time. And the first one was Tom Weisskopf. And he set the bar for him. They weren't going to be as big as they were, but mm-hmm. Guy Yoakum did such a great job with Tom, and Tom was so open that suddenly there's 12-page, 15-page interviews in, in Golf just wow. because of Tom Weiss- Weisskopf.
0: Big loss before big our loss. game. Big so loss. talented, introspective, imperfect, sincere, human. Our condolences go out to Tom Weisskopf's family. You'll be missed by so many
4: in the world of golf.
0: Take a look at the bio for Sam Bennett entered the week third in the, the wagon they call it, the World Amateur Golf Ranking two-time ping first team All-American at Texas A&M but a good athlete tennis player basketball player four letters four letters I mean that's kind that's <laughs> that's of old letters. school for the yeah. SEC player of the year two-time U.S. Arnold Palmer Cup team member as well how about these two young men and, and kind of the roads they traveled to this moment you know Sam Bennett with the tattoo on his on his arm you know your father said don't wait to do something and yes, yeah. traveling home in style, but, but I just love kind of the homespun swing and also yeah. kind of the the, the the dedication to his dad
1: very inspirational. You yeah, know? I mean, just pure golf. These guys, you know, they're not the most gifted probably, but they're the most dedicated, the most grinding. They appreciated mm. the moment. They really loved what they were doing yesterday. They knew how lucky they were. That may be the peak of their careers. Who knows? Mm. But it was really a beautiful moment. And I, I thought uh, Sam. You know He's outwardly very cocky, yeah. uh, and maybe that is something that, that fuels him as he's playing, but he's also self-effacing because he's not ready to turn pro yet. He knows he's got to get better. And, and the same thing uh, with, with, with young man Carr. Ben, you know, yeah. Yeah, he's a yeah. 50-year you know, senior. He's going to go back to school for one more year. So these guys are works in progress, but they gave it their all. And uh, that was you know what amateur golf's all about, yeah. love of the game. And
0: you know athletes, you've covered them for so long, that fine line between being confident mm-hmm. and cocky. And here's Sam Bennett saying, you know, hey, you know, there's a lot of great players here. I'm, I'm the, you know, they're great, but I'm the better player. I'm the dog. <laughs> well, he had in the rating, race. he I had mean, the
1: ranking to support him. He's third yeah. in the world. But yeah. still, no, you don't say that usually. You don't say it out loud. The game, he said you, the quiet <clears throat> part out loud. The quiet part out loud in the game and usually humbles with a backlash, mm. a hard backlash when that usually happens. But again, I think he has that saving grace. And, you know, his opponents did not take offense. Mm. They really liked him. They felt like he's a great guy, he's confident. He gives it his all. I admire him. And uh, that came through. And and, that tattoo, that that spoke volumes, too.
0: How about the golf course speaking volumes as well? You've played Mm. Ridgewood, as have I. It's old line, old school. How important is it to win on a venue like this when you consider where the U.S. amateur is going these days?
1: Well, I think the classic golf courses are made for the U.S. amateur because they can get them really fast and Mm. firm. And there's just an art to playing match play that really comes through in the strategic part. And Tillinghast, my favorite architect, and uh, Richard was one of his greatest works. I remember the 1990 Senior Open there where Lee Trevino and and Jack came down the stretch. And you saw all the nuances of that golf course. And they got it fast and firm. And those slopes, those green complexes, really told the story in terms of good approach shots compared to approach shots you couldn't get up and down because Mm. the green, they were missed on the wrong side of the green. So I just felt strategically one of the great courses. And... The golf's more interesting when it's that way, to me. Yeah. There's just more going on. Mm. There's more to lose with a bad
0: shot. There's more to gain with a great shot. They brought Trevino into the booth, and, and he, you know, he was watching Jack finish, and he said, Jack sometimes peeks at these putts, <laughs> and he missed the putt. And Trevino famously said, give me that trophy, <laughs> give me that trophy. That was the
1: ruthless Lee Trevino <laughs> who knew how to
0: close. <laughs>
1: yeah, and you know Jack did have a little habit of that. Yeah. Uh, in fact, Weisskopf was talking about it. Uh, that at the Masters in 86, he goes, oh, Jack finally kept his head down. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so there was sort of a the little, you know, yeah. a little moment when Jack didn't have everything going. Yeah. That was, a, was the smallest flaw of
0: all though. Big week for Lee Trevino, big week for Sam Bennett this week at Ridgewood. All right, folks, still to come, the automatic qualifiers for both the President's Cup teams have been finalized. So we opportunity to kind of break down the eight international and six American players to make up their respective teams. So please stay tuned. All roads lead to Atlanta, Georgia. First round coverage of the Tour Championship comes your way on Golf Channel Thursday, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. I I think it's one of the most underrated golf courses that that they play, uh, by the way, every year. I mean, I love this venue.
1: I love this venue, too. And I also love the story behind it, what Tom Cousins did for the community. Mm. The way they improved the golf course, the way they made this. You know, just a paradise for tour players to get down there. And, you know, Atlanta, you know, in in the late summer is not necessarily perfect. Yeah. But I think beyond that, they've just idealized the place in a way that I think it has now
0: great tradition. And you think of the tour championship, you think of Eastlake. Absolutely right. You see the 30 players tee it up starting Thursday. Scotty Scheffler, the world number one, the FedEx Cup number one, will have that two-shot lead over Patrick Cantlay, but the question is, you know, who's the favorite? You saw the scores there. You like the, the staggered start. So, yeah. should I just assume that Scheffler is your guy? No, I think two strokes is not that
1: much. So okay. I'm going to go with Cantlay, and oh, I, wow. I just sort of feel that Patrick. He's reliving last year in a way. You know, mm. it, this thing is kicking in in the same way. Of course, golf's so capricious you can never predict. But it just seems like he's such a steady guy and someone who's just so e- even in his temperament that he can put himself where right now it's just yeah. happening organically. He's in the same mindset as last year. I mean, he won BMW. He c- came out of there feeling great. I mean, he was so clutch when he beat Bryson in that six-hole playoff. But he was just equally clutch yesterday. Yeah. So I just think that he's... On a golf course, too, that it doesn't have to overpower. It is more yeah. about precision and accuracy. Plays to his strengths and an all-around game. You've got to hit shots out there because of the design is it's subtle. It's, it doesn't have a lot of, you know, penal areas where you're going to make doubles, but a lot of places where bogeys leak away if you don't hit the ball, you know, in the right place. And I think that's his forte. Mm. And, you know, you don't think about Patrick every week. But when he's hot, you do. Yeah. And he's hot right now.
0: And it's interesting. He's one of those players, and you say athletes, oh, they say it's not about the money. He seems like somewhere, and he said it last year. He mm-hmm. was almost, like, embarrassed by the amount of money that yeah. they were playing for. It. Well, you know, Where does that kind of fit in the equation? <laughs> he's not going to go there, you know, gripping or worrying about whether or not how many zeros are at the end of this well, check.
1: It seems so long ago that anybody's spoken
0: like that. Uh, you <laughs> yeah, know, but I, I think... Quaint, quaint days, Yes, right? yeah, yeah, quaint
1: days. Yeah, and Patrick, even he was somewhat... Consider rumored, you know, yeah, yeah, so you, never know, you but, never know, but I do yeah. think that he does play for the love of the game. Yeah, and uh, he, he's been playing it a long time. He was the number one amateur in the world. He went through a crisis. I think he has reassessed why he plays and he's mm. got just a great perspective on, on the game. Yeah. You never see him get too excited and too up or too down. I think he just understands golf's got to be played with an even keel. And he does it in a way that I think he gets great satisfaction mm. out of being consistent. Yeah. That's what he's really, you know, in his golf swing, in his temperament, and in his performance.
0: Sounds like you're describing Scotty Scheffler well, to a tee. That, that's I, my guy who, who's the favorite. Yes, he has the two-shot lead. And, mm-hmm. you know, having spoken to past world number ones, they don't like being threatened. They don't <laughs> want to lose that. I've talked to yeah. John Rahm about that. I've mm-hmm. talked to Jason Day about mm-hmm. that. They want to grow that lead in the official world golf ranking. And I think that because of the clothes that – Cameron Smith has had that this is a great opportunity for Scottie Shuffler to kind of finish the year the way that he started it with the win in Phoenix and on down, winning the Masters now fourth-time winner this season, and I think that this is a great opportunity. Much like Jordan Spieth, who was threatened by Jason Day mm-hmm. in 2015 when he won the Masters, then you got to hear the footsteps of Jason Day, and then Spieth said, "No, no, no, the FedEx Cup is mine." I think Scottie Scheffler, coming off his first top-10 finish since the U.S. Open, doing that yesterday, I think looks very dangerous and comfortable going into East Lake. I think
1: I think Scottie. Has- has really held on to number 1 very admirably for a guy who had never been in that situation before. Yeah. I think he's risen to the occasion and he doesn't talk about it very much like he doesn't want to make that the priority, mm. but I think there's the competitiveness there that that, yeah. that burns quiet. It's a burns, quiet burns burn, inside. Right? But every even DJ who we used to worry about yeah. know, motivation, he hated lo- losing number 1. Yeah. He would always play better when he was mm. his back was against the wall. So I think number 1 it's nice I think that it's grown in importance as the game has, you know, moved on from 85 when they when they first started the ranking I think it means something to the players and you know I think that extra motivation which is something that is not always easy week to week Mm. the number one position is something that gives I think those guys Mm. an extra amount of focus
0: let's bring back Paige McKenzie Mm. to see if she agrees with us or if she thinks we're talking nonsense (laughs) Paige
2: I mean you're definitely not talking nonsense when you're talking about the top two players on the FedEx list but I would also like to throw Xander Shoffley's name in the ring. Uh, this is a player I talked about last week as a, as a value pick in the odds. He was at plus 1,300 to win the FedEx Cup, and he did his job last week in climbing the board. He's now the third favorite on the board behind Cantlay and Scheffler, and it has a lot to do with how he plays Eastlake. And that's big point that I was making last week is that ultimately the FedEx Cup is determined by who plays Eastlake best. And when you look at the players that have played it since 2016, no one has played it better than Xander Shoffley. And even if you were to compare Xander to Scotty Scheffler and the four-shot deficit he is going to begin with, He is nearly a full stroke better than Scotty Scheffler on this golf course every day, so that nearly makes up for, again, on paper, nearly makes up for the four-shot deficit that he will begin with. And when you consider the fact that he's bringing into this week a significant amount of confidence, giving the credit to the three wins on the PGA Tours this season, he's in the best shape that he's ever been in uh, as it relates to confidence coming into the FedEx Championship, the Tour Championship. Uh, So I would never discount Xander Shafley on this golf course. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing him play.
0: Wow, Paige is having a very good Monday, Jaime. Oh, mean, I mean, she brings up a great point about Xander's comfort on this golf course.
1: I'm, I'm a big Xander fan. I yeah. just feel like yesterday wasn't his best day. Yeah. Again, Sundays are the thing that he's still, I think, growing into as a closer. Yeah. So this would be a big moment to close this out as, as Paige is endorsing, and that's yeah. very possible. But I think right now that's the X factor with, with yeah. X. Terrific yeah.
0: insight from mm-hmm. Paige McKenzie. We appreciate it. Xander, by the way, is going to be on the President's Cup team the President's Cup just about a month away. Team USA will take on the international team at Quail Hollow, Charlotte, North Carolina now yesterday following the conclusion of the BMW Championship. We had the automatic qualifiers for both sides. They were actually finalized. So six automatic qualifiers on the United States. Sheffield can't like their shop there. There are three guys right there and got Sam Burns. Justin Thomas, Tony Fino, are good guys. That's like yeah, It's just a nice guy squad. Nice
1: guy squad, and also a bunch of a bunch of real players. Yeah,
0: that's a deep team. Absolutely. So you got six picks coming for Davis, and then you got the International Presidents Cup captain by good buddy Trevor, Immelman in 2008 Masters champion. You got Cam Smith, a little smoke rumor innuendo about him. Hideki as well. You got Sung Jae, Joaquin Neiman. You got uh, Tom Kim. As we call them, Drew Young Kim, you got Corey Connors, Canadian, absolute ball striker. And Adam Scott, you got Mito Pereira, yeah. who had a great run at Southern Hills. So, so where are we here <laughs> as we look at these teams that are you know, starting to take shape? But there's a lot of unknowns, I would say,
1: as we sit on this Monday. Especially on the international side, obviously. And that's the difficult thing because they're, they're, you know, they haven't got the record against the Americans yeah. in, in the President's Cup, and they're they're playing away. They're playing at home on American home soil. Yeah. So the challenge even is greater with all this uncertainty. Now, maybe it'll loosen everybody up, and they'll just go out and play with nothing to yeah. lose. But, you know, culturally, that's always been an issue at the President's Cup is getting unity, is getting everybody right. on the same page. And you throw this curveball and perhaps a little dissension based yeah. on people who are staying on the PGA Tour and going to live. And, you know, I think Trevor... We'll have to use all his diplomatic skills, and we know he has a lot of them, mm. uh, to, to just keep everything unified. But, you know, I, I feel like I hope the President Cup doesn't lose energy or lose focus just as, just as a sort of a collective enterprise because of this distraction. I, I hope once the competition starts, which it tends to do in golf, yeah. it gets heated. You know, people want to win, mm. and, and that'll carry the, the competition. After that, we'll probably have all kinds of changes.
0: Well, I hope, I hope it doesn't get distracted too much. I think it's a Sandy Koufax. Curve ball, as my dad would say, the ball rolling off the table. That's how big this well, the six. fracturing absolutely <laughs> has been in the game. And Trevor already has had to use energy mm-hmm. to talk about it. And, and T.I. has been very active on social media, mm-hmm. on Twitter, on Instagram, kind of you know, being asked, you know, Cap, are you going to lose players? He's responding to a question about Cameron Smith saying, all I know is I'm prepared. Last week Cam said in his press conference that he's looking forward to the President's Cup until I hear different. I take him at his word, you know, we love the shield, the new logo, and part of what Ernie Els did was to kind of, despite the language barrier, mm-hmm. give the international team something to play for, to rally around. But this is not the best yeah. way to prepare going into the President's Cup where you have to answer questions about who's going to be there, who's going to hold out, you know, how, how you know much is Greg Norman trying to kind of distract from what should be a, a really – Good competition considering the 16-14 result that we saw a few years Greg ago. Greg
1: Norman, who played in the first President's Cup, you he know, did. And, and it meant so much to him at that time, but this was unforeseen. You know, they, the international team has done a lot of great building year after year, President's Cup after President's Cup, to, to get more unified, mm. and, and they're making progress. And yes. I would hate to see this undo it. I think this is sort of a one-off situation, and who knows how it's going to land. Yeah. But uh, at the moment, I think it doesn't help the internationals, at least on paper. Yeah. It, it, it makes the Americans probably feel like, yeah. you know, we have a bigger advantage than we did before.
0: A little strange, though, let's be honest, not seeing a Kepka, a DJ, a Bryson. True. You know, it might be a little easier. The team might be, you know, more coachable. You don't know, have to worry <laughs> about too many of the, of the, the, the sideshow distractions. But, yeah, definitely going to be an interesting President's Cup one month from now. Alright, folks, still to come on golf today. With one week left in the PGA tour season, we thought it'd be a good time to look back at the best moments from the season that was. Let's reveal our favorites after the break. Back on golf today, so many great moments this season. First leg of the FedEx Cup playoffs was Will Zalatoris in the winner's circle. First time FedEx St. Jude Championship. What are they going to say now? I to love that moment. A little ode to Steph Curry of the Warriors. And then yesterday, Patrick Kenley defending his title, the BMW Championship. Caves Valley a year ago, Wilmington Country Club yesterday. I, I like the BMW logo. I'm-, I'm kind of a car guy, and I like the trophy. Giving out the BMW Championship. Been a great season, I think. 47. And final event comes up this week. 33 different winners. Nine players have won multiple times. Five players, including Cantlay, have defended their title. We have 13 first-time winners. The youngest, Tom Kim. The oldest, Chez Reavy. So, one week to go. That'd be fun to look back at our favorite moments from this PGA Tour season. Yes, our favorite moments. I believe Paige McKenzie has rejoined us. Paige, I want to start with you. Your favorite moment.
2: Uh, for me it was Scotty Scheffler winning the Waste Management I or WM I am a, a Scottsdale resident so there's ties there but I think when you look back and you have hindsight into what this meant for Scotty Scheffler this is his first PGA Tour win it's hard to believe it's this season to see a player go from a first win then win three times more including the Masters within a six week stretch and ascend to world number one, where he's managed to retain that throughout the season, you got to look back and realize how important that event was. I think it's also worth pointing out that he had kind of stolen it away or uh, won it over Patrick Cantlay, who had come into this season, and this was his first start of the season, as the FedEx champion. Uh, I think it is kind of interesting that the two of them now mirror it, and will be playing 1-2 in the FedEx Cup championship or the tour championship this weekend. So I I like it for a lot of reasons. I'll also throw in the fact that Sahith Thigala, uh, the rookie that has made it to East Lake, he nearly won this event. He was uh, that 54-hole leader going into that final Sunday. So there is some symmetry and there is some added storylines. But for what it did for Scotty Scheffler, that's why it's my favorite event of the year.
0: I love that symmetry, you know, synergy, kismet. I mean, those <laughs> two. You know, we're going to see them. You know, battling it out in Atlanta. I and mean, how about the season? You know, Tzo. Oh, we all saw it coming. Or the floodgates. I mean, no one. You know, we don't see floodgates open that often on the PGA Tour.
1: Scotty had shown some real promise last year, but once once he got that win, it just something clicked. Yeah. And and he just became a just a slightly different player and a little bit's a lot when you're that good. Yeah. And suddenly those close calls were victories and uh you know it's amazing how quickly he won four of them. Yeah. And you, you feel like he's still got some in reserve because he's got so much game through the back.
0: Yeah. And you wonder if it has gone the other way. He's still having to answer questions. When are you going to get that win? And maybe mm-hmm. he doesn't win four times this season. How about for you? Favorite moment. A lot, lot of high points.
1: A lot of high points. I, I always look at Jordan Spieth as a dramatic figure who does dramatic things. And when he won at Hilton Head, I thought it was dramatic because... It had been a year since he'd won. He'd been through kind of a mini hell. He'd been through a bigger hell before that when he won at Texas Valero. But then when he won at Hilton Head, it's like he regathered himself again and he did it without that club. As he said without the putter mm. he was 60th in strokes game that week which I think was the highest for a winner in many years uh, and but he was first in strokes T to green. So. Jordan's battle has been to be a better ball striker. Hmm. So he doesn't play these rounds where everybody says, oh, he's so adventurous. He plays like Phil. He plays like Seve. He wants to play like Hogan. Yeah. And that week he did, and I thought he was really on to something. And it was an incremental, uh, no question, increase in his, in his confidence and his ability. But it didn't get him quite over the hump like I thought it might. Hmm. But definitely it was, a, it was a really
0: his high point of the year so far. Patrick Cantlay also in the frame uh, at Hilton Head as well. How much with Jordan is it emotional? Just hmm. in terms of, you know, watching someone's golf, eq and someone willing to share good bad and ugly you said the way you feel watching jordan speech how much is that kind of a part of the equation and that being your favorite moment well i think he's an open book uh, in terms of the way he's feeling but i
1: also think he's really a master of his own emotions i really do mm. I, I don't think he's losing it out there like some people okay, think. Okay, interesting. i think he knows when he's venting and when he's in control he's just too good a player who's won too many times and, yeah and, and handled the big moments. I just think the expectations are heavy sometimes. Yeah and the game is capricious and he's lost yeah. a little bit of his ball striking consistency mm. and it and it's leaned on his putter a lot yeah. and it's hard to maintain all that. But I, I'm a big believer in Jordan's mental game.
0: Yeah similarly for me it's Rory McIlroy mm-hmm. in the way he handled the RBC Canadian final round sixty two wire to wire win for a player who let's be honest at this point his career is playing for things larger than himself and you know being a spokesman for the PGA Tour and delivering messages subtle and obvious and, and kind of carrying that weight. And for someone who's, you know, motivation about his long career is going to ebb and flow. Mm-hmm. And the focus isn't always going to be there. His focus, especially toward the end of the year, it seems to be really laser sharp at this point. And kind of being this PGA Tour spokesman in the face of this upstart and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe no, no longer an upstart when you talk about live golf. And, and Rory, to me, I watch him he makes me feel the way I do when I watch Jordan Spieth Mm -hmm. or or Tiger Woods back in the day. I can't take my eye off of Rory McIlroy when he is in full flight. It's different. It's something to behold. He's so gifted. Uh, He's also other-directed towards others. And right now
1: he's playing maybe for something other than himself and For most golfers, that wouldn't work. For him, it may. But I also think that he's hears the clock ticking. And, you know, i got to make something out of my gift here Mm. in this last stage. or not last. Or in my next stage of my career. And he has gotten better. He's gotten better around the green and on the green, which is the most important parts that he had to improve. So I just feel there's more focus towards achievement going forward. I think he can have it both ways. He can do something for golf at large, but mainly do something for himself.
0: Yeah. Very introspective, but clearly Mm. highly motivated at this point in his career as well all right folks when golf today returns we check in on the latest news on the antitrust lawsuit filed by live golf toward the pga tour our legal expert jody balsam joins the show and tells us what you need to know Welcome back to Golf Today. A trial date has been set in regards to a lawsuit filed by live golfers, including Phil Mickelson and Bryson DeChambeau, against the PGA Tour. U.S. District Judge Beth L. Freeman has set a tentative date for summary judgment for July of 2023, with a trial date expected to begin January 8, 2024, months later than some had anticipated. And as you know, it's been a very busy Timeline Since May, that initial live golf field announcement, including Taylor Gooch, Matt Jones, and Hudson Swafford. the first live golf event began in England on June 9th. That same day, the PGA Tour suspending players competing live golf event. 11 players filed an antitrust suit against the PGA Tour. You see the names, 11 outs down to nine. The judge denying that TRO for Gooch, Swafford, and Jones on August 9th. And there you see that summary judgment hearing scheduled next summer. And then January 8th. 2024, the trial scheduled to begin. So great to welcome back Jody Balsam, sports law professor at Clinical Law, uh, Brooklyn Law School. Jody, it's always great to spend some time with you during these complicated issues as well. Judge Freeman has set this trial date for January 8th, 2024. That's a long time from now. So what happens now?
8: Well, we learned three things from the judge's status conference last week. One is that the players, the live golf players down to nine, are not going to pursue any form of preliminary injunctive relief between now and that trial date. So, as you know, they sought emergency relief in the form of a TRO that would have covered just the FedEx Cup tournament. They were denied that relief. They still had the option of pursuing relief that would take them through the entire year and a half until trial, and prevent the PGA Tour from excluding them from its tournaments. They decided not to do that. They decided to allow the PGA Tour to continue, or rather not to ask the judge to stop the PGA Tour from excluding them from tournaments. So we've now got a year and a half period until the trial date in which the PGA Tour can continue to do business as it hoped it could by excluding anybody who is participating in live golf tournaments. There will be no Uh, request by those golfers for interim relief. So that's a big concession by the live golfers. What comes along with that is an equally big incentive to move this case quickly to trial, because the sooner they get what they hope to be a trial ruling in their favor, the sooner they can resume playing for the PGA Tour. So what's going to happen between now and January 8th So there are two things that we learned, two additional things we learned from the status conference last week. One, this trial schedule is still very ambitious. You may remember that the judge originally tried to schedule the trial for August 2023, and she was talked off that ledge by the PGA TOUR's lawyers, reminding her that that is precisely when the TOUR hits one of its critical series of events, the FedEx Cup, and everybody who might testify at that trial senior PGA Tour executives, um, uh, top-ranked players, would be consumed by the FedEx Cup events and wouldn't be available for trial. That's one of the main reasons she moved the date back to January 2024. So what's the third thing we learned is what's going to happen between now and January 2024? There's going to be what is called pre-trial discovery. That is, the parties in this lawsuit are allowed to uh, request from each other documents and um, interviews with witnesses, known as depositions, to learn about the um, positions, the facts, uh, the ecosystem of golf that would support or um, deny relief under the PGA, under the live golfers' claims. And that discovery can be very time-consuming and disruptive. and In fact, it is a very rare antitrust lawsuit that could get through the required discovery in as short a time frame as this judge has um, set forth. In fact, one of the lawyers in last week's status conference made the point that the average time to trial in the Northern District of California for a civil case uh, is well over two and a half years. Uh, So she's trying to do it in one and a half years, and I I wish her luck.
1: Jody, how much did the principles covered in the in the TRO that was successful for the tour, even though the judge said, this is not the antitrust case at large and we shouldn't draw any conclusions about it having an effect. In your opinion, as an attorney, will those same principles be important going forward as the trial starts to uh, get scheduled?
8: Yes, absolutely. Those principles will be a key uh, source of the kinds of uh, questions and requests the parties make of each other in the discovery process. So the parties are, are now um, polishing off their uh, document requests. They're going to ask for a range of materials from the other side that will help them explore the legal questions raised in that TRO hearing, including, is the PGA Tour monopolist? Um, have they exercised monopoly power in a way to exclude or undermine potential new entrants in the world of elite professional golf? Um, what have the uh, members of the tour and the executives who run it um, said to each other about the Live Golf entry? Those individuals will all be deposed. That is, they'll be examined under oath in advance of trial to discover information that will either support or defeat those legal issues.
1: Well, to what extent is it possibly a microcosm of what's to come? What happened in the TRO?
8: Um, So I I would suggest that um, it's not predictive, that the um, level of discovery that you see in a typical antitrust case is so intense, so of such great magnitude, that we still don't know what the factual record will look like. Um, Because an antitrust lawsuit is an inquiry into the operation of an entire industry, usually the documents produced are voluminous. Dozens of witnesses may be deposed before trial. There's a lot still to learn about what the PGA tour did or didn't do um, in response to Live Golf's entry. So it's very hard to say based on some lawyers' arguments in a TRO hearing whether the, there is merit to the, P, to, to the Live Golf players' claims.
0: Jody, the layperson following this story sees that the 11 plaintiffs is now down to nine. Any significance in that change,
8: well, there's there's some significance in that. It shows a reluctance to engage with an onerous, distracting, time-consuming litigation process. If you're a plaintiff in this claim, you will have to turn over personal documents. You will have to turn over your business documents. You will be deposed um, by the other side. In fact, having um, abandoned the lawsuit doesn't necessarily uh, protect any player from. That sort of inquiry, because a lawsuit like this will often generate requests for non-party documents. In other words, any other participant in the golf ecosystem who might have information relevant to this claim could expect to be subpoenaed for documents or even witness testimony. Uh, and one of the issues that was raised last week at the status conference is that a significant non-party here is the Live Golf entity itself. And the defendant's lawyers, the PGA Tour's lawyers, made the point that it's sometimes difficult to obtain non-party discovery from a foreign entity, that especially one that is a foreign government might put up roadblocks to PGA Tour getting information from that entity that it should be entitled to in an antitrust suit of this nature. One of the representations that plaintiff's lawyers made in that hearing is that they will ensure the Live Golf and Saudi investment funds' cooperation with this litigation. We'll see if that actually happens.
0: Yeah, Jody, sometimes cases, you know, trials don't even reach a, a conclusion. Sometimes there's a settlement beforehand between the two sides. With so much time between now and the trial date, what is the likelihood or is it completely unlikely that these two sides would settle?
8: So often you see settlement negotiations incentivized by a ruling a court makes along the way to trial. Uh, There are still a a number of pretrial motions that might be made by both parties to try to narrow down the issues in dispute. And if a judge carves out or dismisses part of the claims that were brought, it might incentivize settlement discussions. Another type of ruling that might incentivize settlement discussions is if the parties have disputes over what is discoverable. And what can be kept confidential during the process of pretrial discovery that might get the parties to the table. Um, But I don't see serious settlement discussions happening here unless something radically changes in the way either party is doing business or if we get some sort of interim ruling from the judge, which changes the um, viability of the litigation.
0: Fascinating, unprecedented times in so many ways. Jody, thank you so much for your insight. We look forward to speaking to you soon.
8: Take care, guys.